Hey, everybody, we're talking to Michelle Mace Curran today. What an amazing person. She runs Upside Down Dreams and is one of the few people who have climbed in the cockpit of a Thunderbird F-16. She's a new friend of mine. You do not want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. This podcast dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Your host, Dallas Burnett, is the founder and CEO of Think, Move, Thrive, which exists to create cultures that others envy. His secret is learning from the best. Listen as Dallas's guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you're in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock that last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Dallas Burnett, and I am in Thrive Studios, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers barber chair. More importantly, I am talking to my new friend, Michelle Mace Curran. Thank you for being here today, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure. And I was going to compliment you on how cool your chair was. So I'm glad I know a little bit more about it now. <laughs> That's right. See, you actually see it. And so it's a top secret. I'm actually, it's good that you said that because I'm actually going to reveal why I sit in a 1905 barber chair, but I've got to get it to some like 50 episodes or a hundredth episode. So you actually are on the inside, so you've seen the chair. So it does exist. <laughs> so here at Thing with Drive, we do our research. And what we've done is we have, we have an amazing pilot here today. But before she was a pilot, she was an ice skater and an apple picker. That is pretty impressive. My wife was an ice skater and I was an apple picker. So Michelle, tell us what's up with that. Yeah, in good company. I think those are things that people don't expect when they're like, oh, you were a fighter pilot and eventually a Thunderbird pilot. And what's something that most people don't know? I'm actually really athletic as an adult, but I was not as a child. And I ended up in figure skating instead of in team sports. And that was what I did for 12 years. And I know you can't see me, but I'm 5'10". So I'm a giant when it comes to figure skating. I was not very good, but it was fun. That's a long time. 12 years. That's a lot. You were an advanced figure skater. This, this is not just like a weekend hobby. You were all in. It was a pretty small town. So the program wasn't as intense as some that you imagine. I only skated a couple times a week. That's what I did. And it was fun. And just recently, for the longest time, I could go put on a pair of skates and it would come right back as soon as I stepped on the ice. But the last couple of years, I've gone only a handful of times and I felt very unstable. So something happened around the time I turned 30, where the memory has faded, my muscle memory has gone away. There's a lot of things. I mean, I, uh, I've got the same thing. I do that on a pair of skis now. It's just like, oh man, this is not as easy as it used to be. Or roller skating. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so let's talk about this. So you go from that in a small town and you said you kind of, well, like you were kind of like you weren't in team sports, you got into ice skating. How in the world do you go from that to F-16 Thunderbird pilot. Tell us about your journey. I think it's not what people imagine. A lot of people would ask me how I became a Thunderbird pilot. And I think 
they would picture me as a little kid seeing the team fly because that really inspires a lot of kids to pursue the military and aviation. But my hometown was in northern Wisconsin, about 4,000 people, so pretty small. There were no military bases nearby, so I didn't really have any exposure to that and not any really general aviation exposure either, other than flying in the back of you know, Delta Airlines or something like that. That was the extent of my aviation experience. I was a really adventurous, kind of thrill-seeking kid, and I was pretty driven and competitive, and I was a good student. That's the form the, the drive and the competitiveness came out in as a child and into high school. And my parents, super hardworking, very middle-class family, they did not have a college fund for me. And so about halfway through high school, they were like, hey, you're a good student, so you should probably start looking at scholarship opportunities. And after much discussing, Air Force ROTC kind of rose to the top there. And I ended up applying for a scholarship and getting one. But I went off to college as a criminal justice major, not planning on being a pilot. Oh, wow. Totally different approach. So you were going into ROTC, it was for the scholarship, but you weren't even, Air Force is not on your radar at that point in time. Well, so you owe four years back to the Air Force if they pay for your education. So my plan was, cool, I'm going to be a criminal justice major. At the time, I really wanted to do federal law enforcement. So I wanted to be an FBI agent or work for the CIA. And that had just fascinated me for a long time. So I went in as a criminal justice major with the plan to go do OSI, which is like special investigations in the military. Do that for four years, get out apply to the three-letter agencies, which they love military experience. So I had the whole thing, you know, kind of planned out what I was going to do. And then about halfway through college, I went on a base visit with my ROTC detachment and actually saw two fighter aircraft, their F-15s, taking off in full afterburner for the first time. That was kind of my first exposure to that type of aviation. And it blew my mind. I was like, holy crap. I, sorry, FBI, CIA, like you just took second place. I'm going to go pursue this now. And that was, I was kind of all in at that moment and set it as my goal and went after it. That's amazing. So what was the process? So once you kind of decided that, what was the next steps for you? What got you into the cockpit of an F-16? What did you have to go through? So in ROTC, you have to compete against other cadets at your school. Luckily, just with the availability of pilot slots in the Air Force and the number of people that wanted them, it ended up working out pretty well. You had to be at a certain level in your class, like ranking-wise, GPA, physical fitness, all of that to qualify. But most of the people that wanted them got them. So, I mean, I was stressed that I wouldn't, but that wasn't too big of a hurdle. Going into the next leg of going off to pilot training, going through that program, which was a year long, plus a bunch of other smaller trainings. So it ended up being about two years getting an actual fighter jet and not a different airframe. That was substantially more competitive. As you got into it and the more you advanced towards fighter pilot, the more difficult it got in all the programs and things that you had to jump, all the, all the hurdles you had to jump. The quality of the people around you raises up at each level as you kind of go through all those funnels. And I went to pilot training with a class of 25. I believe six of us went off to fighter bomber track is what it's called. That's where you're separated off to fly a jet trainer with the potential to go fly a fighter jet or a bomber aircraft. So seven or six or seven of us went to do that. And then 
from there, you don't know how many fighter aircraft are going to be available at graduation for your class. That all depends on the needs of the Air Force. So sometimes classes would get, I think there was a class where there were none, which was very disheartening to hear. But, you know, anywhere from one or two to five. In most classes, not everyone that was in that jet track was going to end up actually flying a fighter. So my class got two fighter aircraft that ended up being available and I got one of them. And you got one of the two. Good for you. That's so awesome. And you did that for 13 years. Yep. So I went into F-16s. You fill out a dream sheet, which lists off your aircraft preferences. And I put F-16s first and was lucky enough to be high enough ranked in my class and have one available. And that's what I flew my entire career, which was just shy of 13 years. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. So when you're an F-16 pilot, you're going through, you've made it to the pinnacle of what you originally had attended. And then you see something else. There's something else at the top. And that is that, I guess, I'm assuming after, I guess, after you come out of that, you looked at the Thunderbirds and said that, I want to go after that. What made you want to go from just F-16 pilot to Thunderbird pilot? So I was not eligible to even apply to the Thunderbirds until about six years into flying the F-16, just experience-wise. There's an hour requirement. And a few people had asked me earlier in my career if it was something I wanted to do. And I'd always said, no, or I don't know. And I had never really admitted that it was something I had been interested in. It definitely intrigued me a little bit in the back of my mind. But honestly, I didn't think I was a good enough pilot to be on the team. And the whole application process was very intimidating. And so it was something that I just never set as a goal. And I was about you know six years into flying the jet. And I was coming up on the end of an assignment, had my follow-on assignment to move. And I just happened to see the hiring email come across. And it was kind of the last notice. I had apparently missed or just auto-deleted the first one and never opened it. And this was the last chance like, hey, the deadline's looming. So I mean, because it wasn't something I consciously had set as a goal. So when the email came, I probably had a lot going on, never looked at it. And then for whatever reason, that day I opened that last chance email, read the requirements and realized I actually met all of them and kind of thought about it for a minute. And it was actually like a big pivotal point. I was kind of nervous to even bring it up to my boss because, you know, once you tell someone, hey, I might be interested in this, now there's accountability. And he was super encouraging. So, but I knew if I brought it to him, like I had to be all in. And I decided it was something I wanted to give a shot. And so went and told him about it. We got my application to package together in record time because the deadline was just a few days away. And I ended up applying and eventually getting hired about six months later. Oh my, that's incredible. So I would think that now there's not a lot of females that are Thunderbird pilots. I would think that there's not as many F-16 female pilots, but I would think there's even fewer Thunderbird F-16 pilots. I mean, that's rare air and you are kind of breaking barriers and pushing forward. What was that like being in your position and being you know, surrounded by a lot of males? How did that play out in your journey? In different ways at different points in my career. So in general, for fighter pilots in the Air Force, anywhere from 2 to 3% at any given time are women. So it's super low, very small group. And then as far as the Thunderbirds go, at yeah, 2% uh, last official numbers, but I know it's gone up a little bit since then. The Thunderbirds have been around for, it'll be 70 years next year. So since 1953, 
And I was the fourth woman to fly in the demo in the team's history. So just a handful of us. So in assignments prior to the Thunderbirds, you're so focused on the mission. You don't really think about it in the jet. Obviously, the aircraft doesn't care, but it is a factor when it comes to the culture and the squadron and how you feel you fit into that culture. And I worked with incredible people, really high caliber, you know, team players, very driven. But there were different points in my career where it was very apparent to me that I was the only one, right? The only woman in the room where I felt a little bit singled out, where there was just, I had to put in some extra work to make things work for me that were kind of built to work for the majority of people, which was were guys. So equipment stuff, flight suits that fit, the way to go to the bathroom in the aircraft, that's a big factor. Just stuff you don't really think about. Many young female fighter pilots have stressed out about how that was going to work for quite a while. You get better at it with practice, but at first you're like, this is impossible. People don't understand what it takes to live in the last 10%. And we're talking about the things that you struggle with. People don't even understand. They watch the jet go by on the in the air show and they're thinking, oh, look at that there. And then they hear, oh, Michelle's in the jet. She's the one of the four that's been a part of the Thunderbird. They're not even understanding you. Like you're having to figure out details like how to go to the bathroom in the air. It's unbelievable. It's like, what's the big deal about that? But that kind of stuff can become a huge distraction and quite a big deal. Earlier in my career, when I was a lieutenant, it was, you know, around 2012, 2000 to 2014, the Air Force was going through a lot of cultural changes then, especially the fighter pilot community. And there was a big conscious effort to shift away from kind of the like good old boys club that a lot of people had thought the culture was like, and it was in some cases, to something that was more appealing to more people because there's a huge shortage and they need to be able to recruit to all demographics. So I saw a lot of change happen those first five years of my career. So it's actually pretty good now and not something that's super noticeable, but it definitely was initially. And in the Thunderbirds, I think it was a huge advantage because the team's mission is to recruit, retain, and inspire. And having a woman flying on the team, you're able to inspire little girls like the guys just can't to the same level. The power of them seeing someone that looks like them in that role is huge. And seeing my braid hanging out the back of a helmet, you know, when I fly upside down, or having a conversation with a 10 year old on the autograph line afterwards, the impact that I could have, no matter what I really said to them, just being female and them seeing someone that represented them was huge. And so being a woman on the team came with a lot of responsibility, but it was such a cool role to be in because I was able to impact so many people. I think that's exactly right. It's something I had not thought of, but ironically, I've just taken, I have three daughters. They're 12, 11, and nine. And so I just took them in the spring to an air show. It's the first air show they'd ever been to. Lo and behold, the Thunderbirds are flying in the air show. And my daughter, my actually my second one is my adventure daredevil. We are the ones that ride the roller coasters in the family. So she is the whole time has never said, you know, what you want to be when you grow up, all kinds of things, but never anything remotely close to a pilot. She goes and sees the Thunderbirds. We get done. And we're headed back. She's like, is that really an option? Is that something I could look at? And I'm like, absolutely. You know, so the fact that you were there and able to inspire young, young ladies, I could totally see how that would help them 
I meet their mission because I know she was inspired. And it's really cool that you have, I love your attitude and I love your approach because you entered into one system when you were early on and you said those first five years, it was one way they operated. You watched that transformation and made it you know, to the other side of that transformation. You're very positive about that. But I just love your attitude because it wasn't like you approached this and said, look, this is bad or this was this or this should have been. You just were like, hey, look, here's the things I had to deal with. And these were the challenges I had to face. And I'm really glad it's better now. And so I just appreciate your attitude. I think that shows a lot of character on your side and your approach on that. I want to talk to, just get you to share. I mean, because your experience in life flying at like, I don't even know how fast you've, what's the fastest that you've ever flown? Uh, I mean, over the speed of sound by quite a bit. I, I don't even know what it is off the top of my head, but probably around a thousand miles an hour. Yeah. So your experience at flying at a thousand miles per hour is so <laughs> just unique. There's only so few people that have done that. I'd love to get you to share a couple of stories, if you have them, about some of your most memorable experiences at flying F-16 over the Thunderbird. Do you have anything that comes to mind? There's so many. I mean, we could talk about everything from you know, combat deployments to my first event ever for the Thunderbirds. So my first public event was the flyover for the Super Bowl in 2019. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. What was that like? You know, winter training season is when the new pilots on the team learn everything they need to know to be proficient enough to put on an okay air show when show season starts in March. And so I was new to the team, along with two other pilots, including Thunderbird One, who's leading the formation. And we have been flying since around October. And obviously, the Super Bowl's in February. So we're kind of focused on the different parts of the demo that we each do, depending on our role in the formation. So I was a solo pilot and had spent a lot of time training solo maneuvers. So the single aircraft, like the max G turn and the rolls and all of that. And the boss, number one, and the wingmen that were new, they had spent a lot of time learning maneuvers and formation with the diamond, which is numbers one through four. And we had just all come together, all six of us in formation, which is called the Delta, a week prior to the Super Bowl was the first time all six of us flew together in formation. And you think, okay, it's a flyover. How hard could it be? All you're doing is flying flat and straight and level over a stadium. Like we do much more complicated maneuvering during a show. But what people don't realize is that a live event, we want to be over the stadium at the Be and Brave in the national anthem. Like that is the target. And there are so many variables that shift that time, right? So you can have TV commercials that change it. You can have the invocation that person talks slower or faster than planned. You can have the singer. It was Gladys Knight the year we did it. So she was very experienced and very on her time. But a less experienced singer on that big of a stage can get nervous and sing faster than they have before, than the time that we've estimated. Or they can get really flowery with the notes and draw them out really long. And if it shifts more than about a second, it would be very noticeable and we would appear that we were earlier or late. So there's eight pilots on the team, only six that fly in the demonstration. The other two are on the ground or in the production broadcast booth with the people that are running the TV side of the house. And they are going through all these checkpoints. Like we're on time, we're ahead three seconds, we're behind three seconds. And they are updating us on the radio. And we have a push time 
where we point at the stadium and we get in formation. And now the train has left the station. And that point is about 25 miles away from the actual stadium. When you're moving that fast and you're at your push time, you're like, we're on, we're going. How long does it take you to travel that distance to where you push and then you're over the stadium? How much time are we talking? So it's a couple minutes. So the tough part is that the national anthem is pretty short. So we have already headed down track. We're pointing at the stadium, getting into formation when they start singing the national anthem. And so the bulk of our ability to make timing adjustments by like delaying our turn to point has already happened. So if the singer is substantially off time, our only ability to correct for that is with the throttle. And we can only fly so slow and we can only fly so fast. And power adjustments and game make it very difficult to stay in perfect formation. So the boss doesn't want to be like pushing the power up like seconds before we go overhead or the wingman will probably be wide. So there's a lot that goes into it. People just don't think about that. You just look up, you see the jets fly, you're like, yay, and you're seeing it. But to get that timing and that synchronization and then in formation, you're not just, it's hard enough to sync with yourselves, you know, in the formation at the same speed, at the same time, hitting it right in the two seconds. You're having to time that off of a singer on the field in the stadium. I mean, that, it's mind boggling how much goes into, into that. No, I, I'm sure. No, I mean, there's so few people that know how much it takes, the effort that takes. That's so incredible. That's an awesome memory. That's an awesome experience. Wow. It was, it was stressful. Yeah. Oh yeah. But you did it. And afterwards, did you like go and celebrate? I'd feel like I'd won the Super Bowl if I just hit all those things. I mean, you're, you know, you're hitting a lot of stuff with your first one out the gate. We got to go to the game afterwards. So that was kind of a once in a lifetime experience. We got a police escort. We were there by the second quarter and actually during a commercial break. So people didn't see this on TV. They had the whole Thunderbird team go out in one of the end zones and they recognized us and the whole stadium gave like a standing ovation and the energy in there was incredible. And it was just so cool to watch the game from the sideline and then be on the field when the Patriots won that year, which I don't really care about football, but I know I feel like it's a love hate with the Patriots. People either are obsessed or hate them, but the confetti falling from the ceiling, it was like so thick. It was like getting in your mouth and it was just a crazy experience. That's so awesome. I love that. Oh man, I could just feel the energy and what a cool life experience. You can always look back on that and just be like, yeah, I was there. I was over it and then I was in it. And uh, man, that is so cool. Listen, I think that is the way, I think you actually have described the most unique ticket you could punch to the Super Bowl. You fly over it at, you know, lightning speed, you get a police escort. I mean, I'm not sure the players got that kind of, you get a police escort in, the whole, everybody just yells and you're there for the finish. I mean, that's just so awesome. So now, yeah, more memorable experience, but it was a different kind of memory. You, you had some issues with a, like a bird or something like that one time. What happened there? Yeah, so bird strikes are something you always are a little bit concerned with in aviation. I'm sure people have seen on the news, you know, when a commercial airliner hits some birds or usually if you do, they're small, right? So a lot of times you would hit a bird and you wouldn't even know. Um, maintenance would find it later on when they would do a walk around of the jet before getting it ready to fly again. They'd be like, oh, there was a little, a little blood smear, which is kind of morbid, but that would be all the only indication there was. And I wouldn't even know, but we did a show in 2019, I think in July in Columbia, like the country of Columbia. 
And so we had flown down there, which is a seven hour flight from Vegas. We fly our own jets. So that's, you know, seven hour flight. That's when being able to go to the bathroom in the cockpit becomes a necessity. Yeah, right. We're doing a Friday practice. So every Friday we'll do a practice show over the airfield to get familiar with the layout of that specific location. And I was what we call behind the line. So behind where the crowd would be standing over the jungle at about 2000 feet above the ground. And I saw the flash of the bird. I mean, there's no way you can avoid them because you're going so fast. I was going, I think around 450 knots. So something close to 500 miles an hour. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams. We help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. So I see the flash of it go underneath my feet, which if you're familiar with the shape of the F-16 at all, that's where the intake is for the engine and it only has one engine. Then I felt it. I felt like a huge thud. I could feel it in my feet. It vibrated the whole aircraft. And so I immediately knew I'd hit the bird and I knew it was big. And then time kind of slows down. When that kind of stuff happens, you get an adrenaline spike initially, and then you know what you're supposed to do because you're trained really well. So you get a little bit of temporal distortion, which if anyone's been in something traumatic like a car accident, time slows down. And like when you think back on it, you can picture all these things that happened in a split second in great detail. So it's kind of like that. And the Thunderbird show is very reliant on communication on the radio. So Thunderbird One, who we call the boss, is on one frequency and he's making all these different radio calls for the people that are on his wings in close formation, as close as 18 inches away from each other. So anytime he pushes the power up or anytime he rolls or pushes forward on the stick or pulls on the stick, he's making a radio call at the same time so that people can anticipate it and match him. Otherwise, they would always be a split second late and they'd be reacting instead of going with him. So he's talking nonstop. And we have a second radio and that's the solo frequency. So myself, I was number six at the time, the opposing solo. And number five, the lead solo are on there. But all six of us can hear both channels. And So my immediate reaction is look at my engine instruments because I know it hit me close to the engine intake. If it flames out my engine, I need to do some things pretty quickly. Um, Luckily, we have a very good ejection seat, but no one wants to use that. And really, no one wants to use that over the jungle in Colombia. 
Oh, God. I look at the instruments. Everything looks fine. You know, I'm worried about the engine itself. And then I'm worried about my hydraulics. Everything is stable. So now it's like, okay, the jet's not going to fall out of the sky. Take a breath and think about what you're doing. And the whole time, we have priorities that were taught very early on in pilot training about what to do during an emergency. And the first one is always maintain aircraft control. So while I'm trying to figure out what's going on, what's wrong with my jet, you have to focus on flying the airplane, right? Because people have flown airplanes into the ground that had fairly mild problems because they got focused on the wrong thing. So I start climbing because altitude's your friend. And then I just have to wait until the diamond is done doing their maneuver and the boss stops talking for a second. So I can say, hey, six needs to terminate, which is a call you make when something's wrong. We need to stop the show or the practice because we need to deal with something. I make that call and he's like, got to finish his maneuver. And then it feels like forever. It's a few seconds. And I'm just back there like, I need to tell them I just hit big bird because <laughs> this is a large bird. So I tell them, they're like, okay, yeah, go ahead and land. Number five joins up on me and gets as close as he can to use his eyeballs to look at the exterior of my jet to see if he can see anything wrong. He's like a California surfer dude, like super doesn't get too excited sounding on the radio. And he was just like, oh yeah, six, you've got a little something on the left side of your aircraft. And that was like his whole, that's all he said to me. I'm like, okay, cool. So I put my gear down. That looks fine. I land, I land uneventfully. I always feel kind of funny telling the story because people are like, so what's the point of the story? You hit a bird, you landed fine. Why are you telling this? Because I don't think they realize how big of a deal it is to hit something the size of a vulture, which is what it ended up being in a jet with only one engine, especially in a foreign country. In the jungles over Colombia. I mean, oh my goodness. And you don't know because I mean, at the time you're sitting there and all you're doing is, you know, you've been hit. And you've got one engine, you have no idea the shape of it. You've got the surfer guy that's like, I think I see something, but he doesn't give you really any comfort. You know, there's a spot. He just verifies essentially what you already know totally. And I think that, I think there's so many things there. You know, number one, you made some really good decisions, but you wouldn't know the outcome. You know, just because you landed safely doesn't mean that you knew that ahead of time. So you're making decisions on the information you know. And there's so many times that people are going into, you know, an environment where, they don't have the full picture. You know, if you're leading a team or if you're, you know, in business, you're always in these environments where you don't know. And so just having, I loved how you said you were trained really well. So when that happened and you were in the situation where you were, there was a loss of some type of control, you just knew exactly what you were going through. And I loved your example because you said that when you hit a crisis, the first thing and the most important thing and the most important training that you received was that you wanted to maintain control what you're doing and maintain focus. I just think that's fantastic because, you know, so many times people get into situations, whether it's in, you know, life, in work, at home, and there's a crisis, you know, it could be a financial crisis, it could be a health crisis, it could be any kind of crisis, business crisis, whatever. And it just, the immediate reaction is like, you just want to freak out. Ah, But I think that your encouragement on that is, is that, you know, from a pilot standpoint, what you're thinking, that cool, calm and collected is like, well, number one, I'm maintaining control. So what do I need to do to maintain control and focus on what I'm doing? Because I don't want to crash the plane if I don't even need to crash the plane. I need to figure stuff out. So I think that's incredible. What an amazing story. So you landed the plane and you found out it was a vulture, which is huge. 
were you able to fly again or was it like, nope, we're done? Yeah. So I was done flying for that day. I didn't know the extent of the damage, you know, number five being like, hey, there's something on the left side of your jet that could be a smear from the bird. Like I've said, I've seen before, or it could be what it turned out to be, which is two giant, not giant, but giant in terms of holes in airplanes, fist size holes in the side of my airplane. And I landed, I taxied back because everything was fine. The gear was fine. The hydraulics were good. I get to my parking spot, my crew chiefs, which were assigned to a dedicated crew chief and an assistant for the whole season. So you know them very well. They become your friends, you know, like their families and and everything. And so my crew chief, Dylan, came up the ladder and, you know, I take my helmet off and he just has like this shocked look on his face. And he's like, ma'am, you have two giant holes in the side of your intake. And, you know, I'm like, how big's a giant? So I get down and look and they're about the size of a fist and they're they straight up punched fist-sized pieces of metal out of the exterior of the airplane they weren't just like dense the pieces were punched out like a cookie cutter and so the intake you know is where all the air gets pulled in that goes into the engine and so the edge of that intake is only a few inches wide and if the bird goes to the left of that as he hits it he goes straight in the engine. If he goes to the right of that, he cartwheels around the outside of the intake and puts two holes in it like he did. They had to pull the engine because they have a bore scope. So, you know, a camera on the end of like a wire and they could look in there at the fan blades and there were a bunch of feathers in there. So part of the bird, probably a wing, did go into the engine. The bulk of the bird, its body, I would guess, hit the outside. And if that had been reversed, I think the day would have ended much differently. Wow. That would have potentially caused a a catastrophic failure in the engine. Potentially mean you'd have to eject. That's intense. Oh, it's intense. Let's talk about this for a second. You've since retired from, you know, the Thunderbirds. And after having a great career, you've kind of started this new venture. Tell us about the new venture. So I left active duty just a handful of months ago after 13 years which a lot of people were surprised by. My time on the Thunderbirds was already coming to an end, regardless of what I was doing next. It's normally a two-year assignment. I ended up doing three years because of COVID in the middle. So that extended that team for an extra year. So I'd already done the bonus tour of the 2021 season. And I was if I stayed on active duty, I was going to go back to operational, gray, colored F-16 combat squadron, or I could get out. So when you go through pilot training, the Air Force spends a lot of time and money to train you and they want to get their money's worth. So you owe, you start a 10-year contract the day you graduate pilot training. From the time you join the Air Force as a lieutenant till you graduate pilot training is about two years. So it ends up being roughly 12 years minimum that pilots are in the Air Force on active duty. And so that time for me had run out in early 2021. And so by the time, you know, the end of the 2021 season, the end of that year came around, I was kind of, I guess, a free agent is the best way to describe it. For the first time, I had the choice to either stay or to consider other things I wanted to do. I kind of known for a while that I've always had a lot of aspirations and goals and hobbies that I really love. And I loved flying, but it wasn't my whole identity. So I didn't have to fly to live. Like it's, I like it, but it's not everything. So 
there's of course the option to go fly for the airlines, which is what most pilots that leave the military do on the civilian side. Not all, but I would say the majority. But I just thought that I wouldn't be super fulfilled doing that. After three years of being in a spot where when I put on that blue suit, I immediately had a platform to impact people in a positive way. Like I went overnight from being a fighter pilot, just like everyone else, to being in this position where I could inspire people and change decisions that they made that affect their life in a positive way. And I loved doing that. That was my favorite part of the job, more than the flying even, which was super fun. But that ability to inspire was the best part. And I think I would have lost that by going to fly for the airlines. And so I started to look at how I could continue to do that in the civilian sector. And I decided to start my own business, Upside Down Dreams, and kind of kick that off with doing motivational speaking. So I do a lot of corporate speaking now, done a few schools, and then that's rapidly evolving or evolving into starting a book and longer term consulting. It's exciting. It's changing constantly. I've only been doing it for about five months. It's so cool to be able to impact people in a positive way still. Oh, I love that. That's what we're all about at Think, Move, Thrive and the last 10%. So it's when you're just taking on a new adventure. It sounds like it's already just as exciting as the adventure that you just uh, closed out. So I would love to talk a little bit about a couple things. First of all, I want to talk about a post that you recently made on LinkedIn. And just for the listeners, if you want to see some of the coolest pictures and videos on LinkedIn that you're going to see on the platform, you can check out Michelle's post on some of the stuff that she puts. Because you're that's how I first ran across one of my friends that's a Navy SEAL liked one of the LinkedIn videos that she put up. And that's when it first popped up on my feed. And it was, I'm just going to describe it for everybody. So you post this, it's a video of you flying straight down. And you're talking about trust in the video. And you make comment on the post like, it's all about trust. Look at where my head is pointed when we're flying straight down at like 500 miles an hour. And just so that everybody in the audience knows, you were not looking down. You're flying straight down and your head is looking where? Which Tell us about the picture and tell us about that idea. Because to me, it was one of the most awesome examples of what a team has to have as it relates to trust. Yeah, it's really such a striking visual representation of it. Um, the maneuver is called the Delta Loop. And so that's when all six aircraft are flying in close formation. So we're anywhere from 18 inches to three feet apart. And we're flying anywhere from four to 500 miles an hour at different points in the maneuver. And it's a loop. So, you know, we start in formation, we pull back on the stick, we go up, we go upside down, and then we come back the other side, just like a loop on a roller coaster. But the only person that is looking forward that has a full concept of where we're pointed in relation to the horizon, our airspeed, our altitude, all of those things is Thunderbird number one, the boss. Everyone else is flying formation off of the aircraft next to them. So I was on the far left wing. So I flew off of number two in his jet and he's flying off of number one. So during that entire maneuver, even when we're completely upside down and even when we're pointed 90 degrees at the ground, I am looking over my right shoulder at number two's aircraft. And my entire goal in the world is to position my jet so I see the correct references on his airplane, which is all based on his wingtip and different parts of the airplane that I'm lining up. And so I am fighting that whole maneuver with constant throttle adjustments, constant stick adjustments to stay in formation. 
Number two is doing the exact same thing, but he's flying off of number one's airplane. And so not only do we have the trust factor that none of us look forward, even though that is a tough thing to develop and it takes some time because initially the urge to look forward, the self-preservation, you know, natural urge to save yourself is so strong. You have to consciously override it. And eventually it goes away and you don't even think about it. But when you're learning those maneuvers for the first time, you, yeah, you want to look forward so bad. But then another really cool part that I talked about in that post and in that maneuver specifically is that number two's airplane is sandwiched between the boss and me, right? So he's constantly making corrections to get his airplane in the right spot. But if he gets slightly out of formation and he makes a quick correction to get back in formation as soon as he can, he can completely screw me over because I'm flying off of him and he mm. needs to be smooth and stable for me as well. So, for example, if he gets too close to the boss, I mean, that looks great to the crowd, but it can be scary for the pilot if you're closer than you want to be. His gut instinct is to kick the rudder and get away, you know, to move back out. But if he does that quickly, I'm going to be in a square corner because he's going to move towards me very quickly and there's some reaction yeah. time involved there. So the wingmen, yeah. you know, in the middle will sacrifice their formation a little bit and how they look a little bit to make gentle, gradual corrections in consideration for the solos who are on the outside of their wings. So I think there's some really cool stuff there about teamwork and that it's not always about what's best for you, that there's a compromise in there about what's best for your performance and is also best for the team as a I whole. I love that concept so much. And the picture just captures all of that. That image is just, it's just an amazing representation because number one, I think there's so many times in teams, whether they're in sports teams or whether they're in, in the work environment or even at home, where as a team member, you just are constantly, you know, under the desire to want to take control, right? Just like you were talking about going down the ground, you just have this natural thing that kicks in. You're just like, this is the wrong way. I've got, I need to be looking. I need to be the one that's calling this. I need to be the one looking at the ground. I need to be the one. And instead, you know, you guys are training and you have to perfect just the absolute trust in the guy that's the number one, or the girl that's number one. It's just the pilot number one has got that. And you're just, you're releasing. But when you do that, it just frees you up to be so much more focused on your role because you're not worrying about their role. And so it just, you can fly in those tight formations. And I think that number two spot that you were talking about is so imperative because the mindset of that number two, you were all over it. You're telling about how you're giving up some of yourself, some of your own ability to win, to perform, to show how good you are for the good of the team, the good of the whole. And that's a real servant leadership mindset. You know, we're here as a team and my role is not to look good on the team. It's to serve the team so the team looks great. And I think that, man, I just love that. So, so good. So tell us about, I just want to get into some of the stuff we had talked about before. What advice would you give and what do you like talking about in, in your platform in terms of upside down dreams? And when you're going and meeting with folks and talking to you know, adults and businesses and kids and all this, what is some of your messaging that you enjoy sharing with them, encouraging them? So I think a lot of people have a lot of expectations and kind of stereotypes of what fighter pilots are like and what a previous Thunderbird pilot might speak about. And I like to think that my topic kind of is surprising, but also very impactful to most audiences. And so 
my presentation that I give with Upside Down Dreams isn't all about fast jets. I mean, that is part of it. And the Thunderbirds are part of it. But the bulk of the story is about the power of vulnerability. And that was something I really struggled with early in my career when I was a new fighter pilot, trying to figure out my identity, trying to figure out what I wanted my reputation to be in this culture, especially as one of the only women that was an added layer of complexity. And I had kind of smoothly sailed along for most of my career, you know, graduating ROTC and doing really well, getting a pilot slot, going after pilot training, getting my first choice of airplanes. I just put in the work and I'd done really well. And then when I got to my first combat squadron, that suddenly wasn't enough. And I realized that the complexities of being a good fighter pilot in that capacity were so much more than just flying the actual airplane. There's so much multi-dimensional mm -hmm. thinking and task management and complicated weapon systems and integrating with other people and other platforms. And it's very complicated. And coming from the background that I did, you know, being a criminal justice major probably didn't help me out. I worked with a lot of people who had been mechanical <laughs> engineers, electrical engineers, and I think they took to that stuff a little bit easier. But I rapidly felt like I was in over my head. And it was quite the shock to the system and to my identity to suddenly feel like I was not good enough. And I had put this idea of becoming a fighter pilot on a shiny pedestal. And I had just run full sprint towards it for about five years at that point to get to this goal. And then I got there and I was like, holy crap, I am never going to be good enough to actually do this job. That rocked my world. And there was about a three-year period. So most of that first assignment, I was living in Misawa, Japan as well. So different country. I feel like the phrase imposter syndrome is overused, but that is 100% what I was suffering from. I didn't want to show weakness. I didn't want to be vulnerable. I felt like I had to prove myself. So I didn't let other people know I was struggling. I didn't ask questions when I should have. I didn't seek out a mentor when I should have. And I just dealt with it all on my own. And I felt like there was a huge disconnect of who I was pretending to be at work versus who I actually was. And it was exhausting. And by the end of that mm. assignment, I was burned out. I would have walked away from the Air Force if it was an option, even though I had worked towards this thing for so long. And from every wow. outsider's perspective, my family, my parents, they're so proud because I'm just crushing it, right? Like I'm 24 years old and I'm a fighter pilot. I'm living in Japan. Like they're so proud and I'm doing all these amazing things, but I'm struggling. I think it's something that's not talked about often. And now looking back on it, I realize that is such a common experience for high performers mm -hmm. that are going into new career fields and people that are yeah. going through transitions. And it's so relatable. And when you share it, it suddenly puts a face behind the mask of a helmet. You know, we're real people with struggles just like you. And so I think it really empowers people to kind of take control and gives them some perspective on some of the challenges that they're having. I think that's so such a common problem, like you said, that people and I, and I think society and culture in general, it doesn't promote that. It doesn't promote, you know, asking for help or saying, look, this is just a real struggle, you know, and it's like, you know, you're in class and you look around and everybody's just looking at the teacher. And you're like, uh, Nobody else has it. Everybody else is getting this. You know, I, I'm the, am I the only one that don't understand it? Everybody else is looking at you going, everybody else is getting this. I don't know. But nobody says anything, you know, and it's the same thing. And just what was the tipping point for you when you got to the end of that assignment? You're burned out. It's interesting that you would associate that with burnout because we do a lot of talks on burnout and battling and coping with burnout. 
But I can totally see how that would cause and be a contributor to burnout because there's no way to get that monkey off your back, so to say, you know? And so what was the tipping point and, and how did you get past that? How did you get through that? What was the decision or the movement that you created that allowed you to move through that? It was kind of twofold. So one part of it was physically moving locations to a new squadron, to a new base. That gave me a little bit of an opportunity to reevaluate where I was at. So it was a personal decision that I made at that point. But then the new squadron that I joined also just had a really great culture already established. I would call it kind of a culture of trust. There were a lot less egos, I felt. And People made mistakes all the time because you'd never fly a perfect flight. Honestly, there's always mistakes, sometimes more substantial, sometimes not that big of a deal. But we always debrief it and look at them and look at how we can get better. And in that squadron, it completely felt like you were safe to admit your failures, admit your mistakes. And that was expected that you would, but it was also accepted that you made them. And everyone was ready to learn from them. And you would walk away from the debrief without feeling judged, without feeling like your reputation had just been tarnished because you fessed up to your mistakes. And I think that's a really powerful thing. So that was part of what allowed me to make the transition. And then as far as internally, I had always been that high achiever that, you know, just was driven and life setting goals and crushing them. And that's just my personality. And I was not happy with where I was at and how I felt. And I knew that I could change it and I needed to stop feeling sorry for myself and just take ownership of it and just kind of lean into what I could do to fix it. And one of the things was just deciding that I was going to be myself at work and not worry about if other people thought I was weird or if I wasn't the perfect cliche of a fighter pilot. And when I did that, I all of a sudden made all these amazing friendships with other people I worked with that were similar to me, right? Like not everyone is the same in that career field. Not everyone is like the type A, almost arrogant personality that you see on Top Gun. And I made much stronger relationships. I'm so encouraged by your message because if you're a business owner and you are not cultivating trust in your organization or your team, if you run a nonprofit, if you run a ministry, whatever the team, military sports team, if you're not cultivating intentionally, I mean, it's got to be an intentional effort of an environment that is absolutely trust-based, then you are, you're missing out on all kind of potential. And your story is just so, it resonates with me because it's so fascinating how you operated and you were successful technically in the environment that you were in originally, but then you left that environment. You chose to leave that environment. When you made it to the new environment, the new environment was a catalyst that actually helped you, you know, grow as an individual, you know, but you had the space to do it because you felt safe. You felt like you're in a safe place of friends. You know, these are people we can come together. We all know we make mistakes and we're going to go out there and we're going to talk to each other, but it's not like I'm leaving and feeling like everybody's looking at me like I'm the person that doesn't know how to fly jet, right? And so I just think that a lot of businesses, in my experience, have not been able to capture that same culture. And the ones that do are unbelievably successful. They have way less turnover of their team members. Their teams are much more high performing, and it just comes down to building trust. And so 
I think that's a fantastic message. And so I just so appreciate you being on the show today and just taking the time. I would love to, I mean, we could talk forever. Your stories are just the best. They're so interesting. It's like I've been watching it. I've been listening to Top Gun. Actually, I've got to see that movie. I haven't seen the movie. Do you recommend it? Have you seen the new Top Gun? I have. Yeah, I went and saw it when it first came out and it's really good. I thought they did a great job of mixing nostalgia kind of from the first one and making the flying stuff as accurate as they could while still taking creative liberties to make it exciting for audiences. So, of course, it's not 100% accurate. I loved it. I thought it was a touchdown. Obviously, it's absolutely killing it in the box office, which is great to see. I made a post on LinkedIn about Top Gun not being accurate, the way it portrays the arrogant personalities of the pilots. People lost their minds. People have uh, latched onto that movie like a religion. You think I was insulting them. It was very controversial, which was not intended. (laughs) Not intended. Well, hey, you know what? (laughs) It is what it is. Everybody... You are a fighter pilot. So if anybody has a legitimate opinion, I think you could speak freely on that topic. So if everybody in social media land, you know, gets all riled up, well, that's just what they do. So we'll just, we'll just, that is what that. They but do. Um, thank you for being on the show. So if someone wants to hire you for a speaking engagement or get in touch with you, how do people connect with you? Very easy to connect with. I think there's a lot of different ways. So you mentioned LinkedIn. I'm on there. Michelle, and then my call sign Mace in quotes, Kern. So Michelle Mace Kern, I read all the messages I get on there. Michelle at macekern.com is my email and that goes straight to me. And then on Instagram, I have an account where I've shared a lot of cockpit videos. So you can actually see there's probably hundreds on there, honestly, if you're willing to scroll back far enough. And that's at Mace underscore Kern for that. So that's definitely the best place to check out videos. But If you want to get a hold of me for speaking stuff or anything else, probably a LinkedIn message or an email. That's awesome. We always ask the guests that come on the show if they have someone that they would like to see on the show. And you'd kind of put a person out there on the form. So tell us who it is and why you would uh, would want to see see this person on the show. Oh, yeah. I think I put Jeanette, right? Yeah. yeah. Jeanette Epps. She's a... an astronaut and she's a complete badass. We actually ended up being at the same wedding. We were both guests and we connected during the reception. And I just talked to her for probably a couple hours. And it was so great to compare career stories and cultural things of being in very male dominated career fields. And she's just a very straight shooter, very intelligent and just a badass. So I'm sure she's pretty busy. Hopefully she's going to space, but you know, you never, never know. know. Listen, it gives us something to shoot for, man. We'll try to reach out to her and get it and see if we can get her a book for an appearance on the last 10%. Michelle Mace, I appreciate you being on the show today. This has been so much fun. It's been great to get to know you and you have been already an inspiration. My daughters have been bugging me. They're like, when, when are you going to talk to When are you going to talk to Mace? When are you going to talk to Mace? And, the, and, uh, so they, after the Thunderbird air show, they've just been blown away. And so when they heard that you were coming on the show, they've just been like bugging me to death. So they're so pumped. And so you've already been an inspiration to them. And I know just countless other thousands of young ladies. And thank you for your character. Thank you for your service. And thank you for all that you've done for our country. So with that, we'll have to have you back on sometime, especially if we can, um, if we can get Jeanette on, we'll have you back on and we can compare notes and, and uh, talk about that some more. And I want to hear some more stories because I know that you have more than just a couple of fists that have gone, you know, holes in the side of your jet. So we'll have you back on sometime. But thank you again for being on the show today. 
No, I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.